Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. This semester, we will take three books for the whole semester, one chapter a week, to really dig in to the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with His Word. This season, we're going to go through... First and Second Thessalonians and Titus. Today's episode, First Thessalonians, intro and chapter one. Well, I am so excited to get um, back with you and get back into our study. We are so excited about this 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 book study. And I'll be honest with you, as I felt led by the Holy Spirit to tackle these three books. I really started questioning that in December. I read through the entire short book of 1 Thessalonians and thought, what am I going to teach? Everything's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, I, I do see some things in four and five, but the first three chapters, what am I going to get on the podcast and say, are you sure, Jesus? Did I hear from you? And start asking all these questions. Well, I think that Jesus just chuckles at me half the time, to be honest with you, because um now that I'm going in with a fresh eye, verse by verse, do, doing some word studies, I'm blown away with how jam-packed, full of goodness that this book is. And so joke's on me. Yes, the Holy Spirit did speak this book, and he has a lot to say, and we're going to dive right in. We're going to talk about the intro. This is important. You know, in my past, I never was one that would even take a look at the intro, and if somebody forced me, I certainly wasn't going to comprehend any of it. Didn't see why that was interesting. I mean, why it was important. Well, we need to know, for every book of the Bible, we need to know who wrote it, who they were writing to, um, the, the area that it was written in. We need to know this context because it really helps the book come alive. So this was a letter written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica. This is probably the first letter that he ever wrote. And he founded Thessalonica on his second well, he didn't found the city, but I mean, he founded the church there on his second, second, second missionary journey in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 17. I encourage you to go to chapter 17 and review yourself with the story because you can actually see what happens as he enters the town and, and things that God's doing and then the persecution that he gets. He's traveling with Paul. I mean, he's Paul. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm going to just be honest with you. I recorded this for 45 minutes. I feel like I nailed it. I was using my new equipment, and it sounded like a scrambled robot. And so it's just so disheartening when you put all this prayer in, and you record it, and then it's good for nothing. It's just trash. So I went back to my normal, comfortable way of doing things without any technology, and I just need help. So if you're somebody out there that knows how to help me, reach out. Paul was traveling with Silas and Timothy during this time. When the church was founded, it really flourishes despite the severe persecution that they go through. Thessalonica was originally this ancient town of Thermae called, hot, another word for it was Hot Springs, and it's located on the coast of the Aegean Sea in modern-day Greece. This was a very strategic location, and it had widespread growth because of it. There was enough Jews located in this area to form a synagogue. And we see anytime Paul enters into a town, he first goes to the synagogue because the gospel is first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. 
And then another piece of interesting information that I'm including on here, because I just want you to see how when we study things, you might think, why do we have to know this? But it just helps build on one another. For those of you that have gone through Daniel, we really had to um, understand and study the um, the Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great. And we learned that at his death, his four generals took over and kind of split up the territory. And we spent a lot of time in Daniel talking about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Um, but this, in this book, Cassander is actually um, one of his generals. And he is the one who founded the city in 315 BC and he became king of it. He renamed it from Therma to Thessalonica to name it after his wife, which was Alexander the Great's half-sister, I believe. And then in 167 BC, Rome came, captured it, and it they made it the capital of Macedonia. This, this thermi is perfectly situated for commerce and military enterprise. It's the best harbor in the entire Aegean Sea. And this town is located on the Via Ignatius, Ignatia. This is a major trade route you might have heard of the Via Maris, which was the major trade route that runs through Israel that went from Egypt up through Israel and then into Asia Minor. So you, you're constantly having travel and economy and different people from all over the world traveling on this trade route. Well, the Via Ignatia was the one that went east to west in the the uh, Asia Minor. It's, think of it as the I-10 of America. This is a very populous, wealthy, important city in Macedonia. It was a free city. So in the Roman Empire, they did allow some cities to be free and govern themselves. I can imagine that they were the cities that were like-minded with the philosophy of the day and that weren't a threat to Rome. The people in this church have transferred their allegiance from the pagan gods of the city to Christ. Some of the religious competitors to Christ were the various mystery religions, Dionysus, Serapis, Isis, Aphrodite, um, Zeus, Asclepius, and the imperial cult worship of the Caesar. Remember, we talked in Mark a lot about imperial cult worship. Caesar would have been viewed as the son of God that brings a gospel of peace and salvation to the world. And Paul is entering in preaching King Jesus being Lord, being Savior of the world. Paul is going to be a tent maker. That is his trade, and he is going to practice his trade while he's in Thessalonica. So he sets up a workshop. Remember, this is a hustle-bustle city. It's a major port. It's on the major trade route. So you can imagine the amount of people that are going through his leather shop and ordering things, which provides the perfect place for Paul to preach. He's going to preach in his workshop, and he's going to preach in home churches. His obedience brings a lot of opposition. The synagogue leaders are losing followers, so they don't like him. The city officials are losing the most powerful women of this area, so they don't like him. And Paul's host and his close workers are going to bear the brunt of this. Paul and Silas and Timothy are eventually all chased out of town by the Jewish religious leaders, and they end up in Berea. Berea is the town that accepted the, the word with excitement and joy, but they decided to test it against scripture, um, which they did, and we are to model after that. But then those Jewish religious leaders don't like the goodness of God that's happening in Berea, so they come down to Berea and chase the three into Corinth. Now, Paul and Timothy, no, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas send Timothy back 
to Thessalonica because they had only founded that church for three weeks before they got chased out. So they send Timothy probably because he is going to be able to go in and be the least noticed because his his father was Greek. The, um, Paul and Silas are Jewish men, and they are going to be easily recognized. So Timothy goes and spends time, more time with the church at Thessalonica, and he returns with a report and money from the church to Paul while Paul is in Corinth. Um, this, this Thessalonican church continued to fund other churches and their projects. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I'm sure that that happens among denominations. You know, one denominational church will help other brothers and sisters within that denomination. But can you imagine just seeing each other as the body of Christ and just helping whatever church needed help? I think that that's awesome. So Timothy is reporting all of this good stuff that's happened in Thessalonica, but he does have a warning about a couple of things. And this is going to be what leads or um, entices Paul to write this first letter. So Paul is going to talk about his own integrity and the integrity of the team. He's going to address severe persecution and he's going to encourage them on how to walk boldly through it. He's going to talk about their need for holiness. You've got to remember that these conversions were, they were idol worshipers. And a lot of times, um, sexual sins, sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion was tied up in idol worship, but with along with many other things that weren't of God. And so this would have involved radical transformation. And they needed probably more time to get the ingrained culture out of them and their minds renewed with a new way of thinking. And then they had a lot of concerns about the return of Christ. They they had questions about dates and times and what were the fate of those who had died before him. I did come across this quote that I thought was interesting. They said, and I didn't, oh, it was from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. The Thessalonican church has no formal leadership. It's informal. There is no trace of any clerical staff. The church still lives in the spontaneous joy that does not require structure to endure. That's powerful. So we're going to go ahead and take a look at what's going on in this church and some of the things that are happening and what Paul's addressing in this letter. So he starts off with a typical greeting um, of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So first off, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, Silvanus is his Latin name. The To the church in Thessalonica, that word is ecclesia. Ecclesia is a body of believers. And he is thanking them or greeting them. Grace to you is a common Greek um, greeting. And then peace, shalom is a common Jewish greeting. So he's greeting all his brothers and sisters in Christ with the greeting that they are more um, likely to use. He goes on to verse two and he says that he's always thanking God for you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. And I put a note to myself Pray like Paul. How many times in our lives do we get so caught up in wanting God to change our circumstances or our friend's circumstances and we pray for the needs that we have and even if it's, you know, with God in mind to advance the kingdom, we see, we don't really see Paul so much praying that way, but we constantly in all his letters are seeing that he is remembering the goodness of the people he's met, and he is always thanking God for them. And this is constantly, and they are constantly in his prayers. And I just think it's so enduring. We're going to really tackle how Paul views love here shortly. 
So then on in verse three, he says, we recall in the presence of our Lord and Father, three things. We recall your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. Notice that it's faith, hope, and love that he has mentioned here. Um, we, I want to point out that Paul's heart was filled with gratitude. He had been run out of this town three weeks after he founded it, founded it, but truth prevailed. And Paul was learning that God was still at work. He calls these people brothers, and he uses this term 15 times in this letter. And so he has a, a strong affection for them. We're going to tackle these three things, the faith, hope, and love. He's going to later say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but we know three things last, faith, hope, and love. These are three things that are lasting. These are three things that God wants us to find. And this Thessalonian church is finding them in the midst of their persecution. And he, Paul goes on to say the greatest of these is love. But first, we're going to talk about the faith. Um, the Jew, Paul had a very Jewish view of faith or trust. And this is a faith or a trust that's not merely a mental attitude or belief. Like they have faith in Christ. They, it's not just a, okay, I buy that. I believe that Jesus is God's son. I believe that he. It's not just that. It's a firm reliance which produces action. So to the Jewish person, if you say you have faith or trust in something, they are going to visually see that faith with their eyes. You are going to run after it with all of your being and you're going to produce fruit. And this Thessalonica church had that kind of faith. There was evidence of that faith by what Paul was seeing. Also, he mentions love. And to the Jewish person, love is not a feeling, but a result of hard work. We see the intentionality that Paul puts into this. He loves this church. He thanks God for them, and he's constantly praying for them. Love comes from hard work. In fact, my, um, newly, my husband is a counselor, and um, there, there's been different discussions through the years of maybe a spouse wanting to adopt a child after they have their own, and the other spouse will typically struggle and say, I just don't know if I can love this child like my own. And Newley's response is always, you love who you invest in. You love who you pour your life out to. And as a baby or even a child, you are going to care and nurture this person you're bringing to their home. Love will grow. It's not a, a matter of loving something more. It's just love will grow. It's produced from hard work and selflessness. And so that is what Paul is talking about. He also mentions hope, and he purposely mentions that last here. Uh, their hope is in Christ's return, and it seems like this maybe has produced some impatience or maybe a little bit of laziness. And Paul's saying, oh, hey, no, we need to continue the good work that started. Hope isn't a wish. It is an expectation grounded in God's word that he will fulfill his promises. I'm going to say that again. When we hope, that isn't a wish. It's an expectation grounded in God's word that he will fulfill what he promises. So we can walk in authority when we have hope in something. Let's see. Going to chapter, I mean, verse five, he goes on to say that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. The thing that really stuck out in this section is that the gospel did not come through word only. Paul went with his words, but they watched him day in and day out live out 
his beliefs. Remember, action is such an important thing to the people in this world. And he said that the gospel did not come to them in word only, but also power. So there's a couple of things that we're going to unpack here. Um, this, this word power actually in the Greek uses the same word for dynamite. That's how powerful the power of the Holy Spirit is. This is when you share good news of the living God with someone else, then you are releasing power behind those very words that can go in and pierce hearts and pierce minds. Um, the first century people felt that only teachers worth a moment's attention were those who taught with their lives as well as their words. The people of this day wanted to see action behind your words, and Paul was giving them that Dr. Constable said Paul was not persuading them by clever oratory, but the power of God through the Holy Spirit's convicting work had brought them to faith in Christ. The spiritual power and conviction in which the message was received matched the power and conviction in which it was delivered. We spent some time last night in my small group talking about this. You know, we overcome the world by the blood of the lamb, the work on the cross, and the words of our testimony. And somehow in our culture, this word testimony has gotten turned into one story that needs to be told and practiced and written out about your conversion. That is not what a testimony is. A testimony is when you are testifying about the work of God in a particular circumstance. I have many, many testimonies of God throughout my life. I mean, my goodness, there's a testimony I have um, last week of just how God showed me what Bible Nerd Nights was supposed to be. And it was supposed to be outside. He made it clear. He had shown visions um, on to my intercessor team. Some of them had dreams of what it was supposed to be like. But when we looked at the weather, the weather screamed up until as we were putting it on, that was 67 chance of rain, percent chance of rain. And we had to go by faith and not by sight. And God held the rain off. And not only did he hold the rain off, it blew away the owner of the venue we had it at. He thought we were crazy. And he saw the goodness of God. And the moment that um, the guy closing said, amen, it started raining. So that, that is a testimony. We are testifying of the goodness of God that we knew he gave us instructions for something. We had to go by faith and he showed off like I've never seen before. That is testifying of God. So we take whatever part of our story, whatever thing that God has done that would relate to the person that we're talking to, and we testify of the goodness of God with joy. God releases power from the Holy Spirit to pierce hearts, and he does the work. And that's what we're called to do is release those stories. I do want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is a living person that works within the heart of the hearer to convict or comfort or instruct. David Gusick says, we sometimes think too little about the spiritual operations of the word of God. There's a spiritual work of God's word that goes far beyond the basic emotion, educational value of learning this Bible. Um, that, that's the heart of Bible nerds. We, we don't want to take you through this journey so that you can have more head knowledge of God. We want to take you through this journey so that the Holy Spirit can use the power of God's word to transform you. It transforms our minds and our hearts and it makes us more like him. It makes us more in love with him. And when we're more in love with something, guess what? We shout about it from the rooftops. I can remember way back when that I got on Weight Watchers. This was before I even was married and I had lost 10 pounds. Like I found something that worked. I think I drove people crazy talking about this. So how much more are we going to share the love of God when we're absolutely 
in love with him and we see good works. So I'm just seeing if there's any other good thing that I want to share with this. So he, Paul did not come in word only, but the power of the Holy Spirit was at work. He goes on in verse six to say, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe persecution. You welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. This is another segment that I'm going to spend some time sitting on because Paul says something interesting that kind of goes against the natural thought of the Western church. Um, I had a friend recently say this to me, but it what it didn't catch me off guard. This what I knew in the moment. It was just confirming that this is the mindset of most people because guess what? The church has taught us this. She said, I don't follow man. I follow God. And in the moment, I thought, that's a common thought in, in the church today. And thank you, God, for Bible nerds so that we can walk people through. Not even realizing, and I just sat and listened, but I didn't even realize that First Thessalonians was going to help unpack and teach this. In the Jewish mind, in Jesus's mind, whenever he says, go make disciples, that idea is for you, yes, to follow God, but the the way, one of the ways, one of the avenues that we do that is we follow someone that has good fruit and we get to pick that person to follow. So Paul mentions this, to, he, he admonishes the church for being imitators of him and his team. And he goes on to say this again in this book, but then he's going to also say it in Philippians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 in different ways. The Jewish plan of following Jesus is through discipleship and the very essence of it is spending so much time with someone that you see has good fruit that you become imitators of them. So we're going to break this down. David Gusick says, who do you want to look like? That's who you follow. And that is that the idea in the first century. They didn't just go it, 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 there was more practicality in it and then just praying, okay, God, where do you want us? It was you looking with your eyes at who was living out their faith because the person with faith had action, they had fruit, and they were supposed to identify the person that they wanted to look like and they followed them. In fact, in first, the, the rabbinical system that Jesus follows, they, they go through school and when they get ready to graduate, they have to follow a rabbi for three years. And that means that they are, you know, they, they've seen these rabbis in school. They've had lectures from them. But now they're going to follow one for three years. I mean, they're going to watch how they walk, how they talk, how they treat others, how they treat their family, how they um, carry themselves in the market, how they repent when they make a mistake. They're going to be watching the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the, the process would go, you graduate from school, you're a student, and you start looking and you identify someone whose walk you like. Not because their 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 walk is cool and they have the coolest fads and stuff. That's not on first century mind. First century mind is who looks like God who is carrying out through their actions what scripture says. That's who I want to imitate. That's who I want to look like. So then they go up to the rabbi and say, hey, can I follow you? Well, the rabbi doesn't want to invest three years of their life into something that would not be good soil. So they quiz the student. And if they find the student worthy of allowing to be the um, disciple, they say, come follow me. So the picture is that you get to pick who you want to look like, and then you imitate them. You carry on in your marriage like they do. You carry on in 
ministry like they do. You carry on in everyday life like they do. It's not saying that the person is perfect. Paul's not saying we're perfect, but we're, but what he's saying is I'm pursuing God. And when I blow it, there's a process in scripture laid out that we are to repent and turn. And I'm going to show you what that looks like in my mistakes. I can remember that my dad, um, this really hit me hard and made an impact on me. He, he really was who discipled me and he blew it at a sporting event at one of my brother's sporting events in high school and lost his ever loving mind on the ref. I mean, he didn't use cuss words or anything, but he lost his temper and it was humiliating to us <laughs> as everyone in the stands watched. And when we got home and he cooled off, you know, he regretted that he displayed himself like that. And he apologized to each one of us and the family, but in front of us, he called and apologized to the referee and then he called families that were in the audience that, that saw him and apologized and asked for forgiveness. And so I remember thinking like, wow, that's so powerful. Like I get to see this man in humility and what that looks like and how to make things right. And so in our lives, we're modeling how to correct things when we blow it. And that is all part of discipleship. Um, let me um, just kind of catch up on my notes because I'm talking off cuff right now. Um, how, do, how would this look today? You know, this, this is a message that really, really hit me and impacted me in such a way that led to Bible nerds when I was in Israel. And the thing that got me was as I was hearing what first century discipleship was and how we're always thought, how are we supposed to go make disciples? Oh, we tell people about Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what go make disciples means. It means like have people walk alongside of you and watch you and emulate you as you follow Christ. And I got that on a youth pastor level. I, I was no longer a youth pastor, but that's where Newly and I started. And I was like, I get that on the youth pastor level. We had a kid in our youth group that was in middle school and Newly and I first started his name's Ryan Holland, and he is a local um, associate pastor at Bridgepoint Fellowship here in town. And he inserted himself into our lives. At the time that the church was planted, the church had been completely remodeled from a grocery store, but they left the meat market for the youth. And I called it the dungeon, and there was still blood splatter on the walls. Gross. So newly got a little budget and borrowed sound equipment and um, an old sound, like, station from another church and just took a little bit of leftover things from the church and tried to make it this cool vibe and paint it and uh, do what he could with it. And Ryan inserted himself into Newly's life. They didn't really know each other, but he said, hey, I'll help. And he not only learned a lot of working with wood and practical things that an adult male would benefit from, but he got to see an inside view of Newly and I's life. He saw what we were like behind the scenes, and I'm talking hours. And then, you know, as he grew and uh, became a teenager that could drive, it was not uncommon for us to come home from a movie or out to eat with people, and him and his best friend, Matt, would be on our front porch. Like, they spent hours of their life with us, so they knew the real us. They knew how much, how well, good newly treated me behind the scenes. They saw us in our tiffs. They saw us make up. They saw all the things about our lives, the good, the bad, and the redeemable. And so I get that. I'm like, okay, I get that. He was a kid. He didn't really have responsibility. That was easy for him to insert himself into our life. What does that look like for an adult? And, um, I'm going to give you a picture of that. First, I'm going to give you a picture of what it not, it's not. Um, a couple of years ago, Newly and I had a young couple show up at our campus, 
and basically communicate to us that they want to be discipled by us. And I think what they meant was, hey, let's set up a meeting where we can come over for an hour in your living room and you pour into us. That's not discipleship. What discipleship is, is becoming involved in your rabbi's life. <laughs> and it doesn't have to necessarily even be somebody on in ministry. You just look around it. I mean, gosh, I have two women, that three, three women that are older in my life that I just want to look like when I'm their age. Not, I mean, yeah, physically or, but I, spiritually, I want to live life like them. I insert myself into their lives. So we, we invited this couple. I looked and I said, the best thing you can do is next Sunday morning, be here at 730. That's when we get to the church. And what I was inviting them to do is to help us serve alongside of us because you are really going to pick up our heart and who we are if you do that. And you're going to get to see the behind the scenes, us cutting up, us having fun, and so much more. What I was offering them was so much more than an hour formal meeting where we went through a book or something and we never saw them again. That, that they did not catch the heart of discipleship. So what this does, I'm watching this unfold, what it does look like right now. I have a dear friend, Jolene, who I've already mentioned, I think in Romans 15, I mentioned her. And we've been friends since, since high school. And she has an extremely busy life. She is in California right now, and I think like she flies out every single week. She either works in Houston all week, you know, coming home back and forth and being exhausted, or she's flying out somewhere. And when she's home on the weekend, she loves to serve people. So she's either making cake or making dinner for somebody's function. And once again, being busy. And there is a young girl in her life, when I say young girl in her 20s, who is a single mom who has a very successful career. And on top of that, because of her success, has purchased a venue and that venue has become extremely successful. My point being is this woman is busy. She has every excuse in the world to say she's too busy to, to be discipled, but she's hungry and she has identified Jolene as the mother that she wants to be with the attributes that she wants. And so she inserts herself into Jolene's life. It's not uncommon for me to hear Jolene say that this young lady was over while Jolene was baking or cleaning house or she inserts herself into Jolene's life and she makes time to do that. And so that's our job is we get to see who we want to look like and we insert ourselves into their life. That that might be somebody that is on staff somewhere. Go to their church. Don't ask them for extra time out of their schedule. Or it could just be a, an, a, an older person that you go to church with. Again, just say, hey, would you like to go to breakfast sometimes? What are some things that you like to do? Can I come over and, and do that with you? You know, one of the ladies that I spend time with, she likes to walk and exercise. We've gone on so many walks. Like that's when we get to spend time together. And so find out what they like to do, spend time with them. And that's what Paul did with these people. He had spent so much time with them. So give me just a second. I'm about to have a delivery truck pull up and it's going to make some noise. But um, so then he goes on to say that they have great joy in the midst of their persecution. And this reminds me that Paul is going to also say in Romans 5 that this, this persecution is going to produce some really good things in them. It's going to produce perseverance and character and hope. He knows that persecution is 
not going to stop their joy. They are finding joy not in the worldly things, but they have each other and they're busy about doing kingdom business. Um, in my life, since Bible Nerds, it has been filled with the most absolute heart aching spiritual attacks. It has been not persecution in the sense that people, angry mobs come in after me, but I can tell you, like, I'm, I'm constantly reminded from Facebook memories of my life before Bible nerds. And I absolutely, every post is how much I love my job and how much I love ministry. And there's so much joy. And to be honest with you, I question now how effective in the kingdom that I was during those seasons of great joy and, and, and wonderful times. But I know something happened in me when I went to Israel. It was a moment that I will never forget. And God radically changed me in Israel. And I knew, it's like I knew what I was created for. And everything came together, and I started teaching people how to read the Bible. And so for seven years since Bible Nerd started is when this these spiritual attacks really started happening. And when I decided to go full-time, which was in October of this past year, Immediately, God put a team of people around me that he had been preparing for their life and not like, oh, for me to to nurture and mentor. Like these people are rock stars in their, their giftings. And God purposely wants Bible nerds to have those gifts for whatever work that he has in it. It's such a beautiful thing. But immediately... Um, well, not immediately, but pretty close from the beginning, one of our team members that is our funny writer that we all adore, Shara, comes down with cancer. I mean, I can remember like I'm weeks into this and I get the phone call and I'm like, what? I mean, just a huge blow on our team because we love her. And this is not what we, we don't want her to walk through this. Another one of my team members, her husband has cancer and, you know, just the, the, just the heartache that goes and the hard times that goes through that. The week that we, the very week that I was full-time on my own for the first time, newly got in a wreck and totaled his car and it was not his fault. And two other people got in wrecks. One of them's daughter totaled her car. It wasn't her fault. And another one, somebody backed into him while they were inside at a wedding or something. And these are all team members, all, all of these attacks on our cars. And then, um, you know, team members' integrities have been attacked. My integrity has been attacked on multiple um, ways just through the years, you know. And there's been just heartache in marriages, you know, like that all of a sudden had come under attack. Just absolute rejection in some instances. And I can honestly say that... It, even though we identify all of these things, God has done such an amazing work in our lives, and we see evidence of His Spirit moving through this ministry that we all, with assurance and joy, can say, let's go. So I'm experiencing what I'm reading, how they've had this great joy and persecution, because they are seeing God move in such unfathomable ways that they know with assurance that this message is true. And yesterday, as I'm with my study team, I meet with a study team in the morning. They're part of the people that help pray, pray for this ministry and plan and speak into my life. But then in the evenings, I do a small group where I'm teaching people how to do what I do. So you'll hear me reference both. But my study group was meeting in the morning yesterday, 
And Patsy Stout, some of you know her, and she's just like the woman that everyone wants to have at a seat at their table because they just want to look like her, literally imitate her life. Um, she closed up. I mean, everybody was talking and sharing such good stuff. And she just kind of paused and says, I have a what if in my journal. And so we all immediately stopped to listen to what she had to share. And she said, what if we start looking at our trouble as effective Christian living? What a perspective change. And that hit me, that has hit me hard for two days that in the years that Bible Nerds has started, and, and you're going to have your own thing since living with the Lord, you know, what, 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 what things have shifted and come against you. What if we start looking at that is like, hey, that's God. God is winking at us because we are agitating hell. <laughs> and so I just thought that was such a perspective change. And you do have to honestly, when, when, persecution or spiritual attacks come, you do have to examine it. You have to say, am I doing something that is not pleasing to God and out of line with what he has called? Is there some kind of sin that's involved? And you examine yourself. But, you know, there is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. There's going to be fruit. And so if, and so if there's no sin and you've examined everything, the evidence should be the fruit and joy. And that is really what we're experiencing. It is a crazy, crazy phenomenon. But joy comes when you live for God, no matter how hard the spiritual attacks are. And then he goes on, Paul goes on, I'm going to wrap this up now. But he says, as a result of you imitating us and the Lord, you've become, in doing this with great joy, you've become an example to all believers in Macedonia. Like now Macedonia is imitating them. They're the examples. Do you see how quick that that happened? Paul was there for three weeks. And this is just a few weeks later. They're already shaking things up in their region because they're imitating Paul. And now they are becoming the ones who are imitated. He goes on to say that the Lord's message rings out in every place. That word rings out means like a loud trumpet. They are, everyone in this area, they're talking and they're hearing about the work in the Thessalonica church. If you get discipled and allow the Holy Spirit to do this transforming work, the result is you will be an example to others. So last night as we were talking about this in my small group, um, one of the girls, one of my dear friends in the small group is sharing how Brandy Lucas, who's a part of the Bible Nerd team, how she has been that person. Madeline says, I want, I was in Brandy's small group and that's who I wanted to be like. I would think, I want to imitate her. I want my Christian walk to be like hers. And she was with her for about three semesters, I think. And then she went into a special small group that um, was specifically a curriculum and she didn't know anyone in it. And after a couple of weeks, one of the girls in that small group was sharing and she said, you know, I just want to look like Madeline one day. And it just shook Madeline and gave her such encouragement. But as she followed and imitated Brandy, and as she spent time in the Word and allowed the Holy Spirit through the Word to transform her, she became somebody that somebody else wanted to imitate. It doesn't take long. We can look at the woman at the well. We can look at the demoniac that was possessed with a legion of demons. They spent a moment with Jesus and immediately took what they had. They testified of that moment being set free. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, changed their region. It happened immediately. And so we need to believe that. We need to have that head knowledge that the Holy Spirit 
moves in power and move and put it in our heart. And I think we will be more quick to share and to testify God's goodness. Paul ends up saying that he doesn't really even need to preach because of all of this going on. Like they basically put Paul out of business because they are running the race with such reckless abandon. And then in verse nine, he says, you turn from your idols. They did. They left them behind. Remember all the gods that we were mentioning earlier. And there were so many acts that they had to do to worship the gods. And they've left that behind and they've turned to him as the answer. Friends, I do want to leave us today with this thought. We all have idols in our life. Ours look different than carved stone or wood. They look much different than the the Thessalonica idols, but I have listed probably 10 huge idols that we as the Western culture struggle with. And some of these things are good things. I'm not saying that they're bad. They're good. But if they're in their improper place, that means that they become an idol. If we place them and the value of them over our relationship with God and the work of the kingdom, then I'll say over our relationship with God, then we have placed them higher than him and they have become an idol. So I'm going to list some things and these are just things to think about and and ponder on, and you know, you're going to see whenever I list them, you're going to see, oh yeah, that is a big problem in our world today. But I want to point out that none of these things listed bring joy. The world promises they bring joy, but you'll hear testimony after testimony about how people are unfulfilled. They get to where they want, and now they want more because they're unfulfilled. And I want you to put that in light of the Thessalonica church These Thessalonians are being severely persecuted, but they have great joy. So the idols that we, some of the idols that we struggle with, one, identity. We all are, we all can have an identity crisis and we want our identity to be in something. And sometimes we pour so much into that one thing so that we have an identity. Another thing is material things and money. These things aren't bad, but when we try to be fulfilled by them, they can become an idol. Our job or job status can become an idol. Our physical appearance can become an idol. Entertainment, I think that's huge. We all crave entertainment because we get to check out for a little bit and feel temporary joy. Um, Sex can become an idol, and that's age old. Comfort. A lot of times we won't do what we know that we're called to do because we stay comfortable. But let me tell you, that comfort is a lie. There is not near as much joy as just jumping out of the boat and being radical about your calling. Um, Phones and anything technical can easily become an idol. I have to watch that with, you know, for myself, like, my goodness, sometimes I need to just put it away. Our family and children, although good and so important to the heart of God, we can place more value and importance of them over our relationship with God, and then 10, influence and fame. I can tell you personally, when I started Bible Nerds, my idea and my heart, my goal was to get five people on a Facebook Live video. So they were small group leaders, and I thought this would be the only time that I could lead these people through reading the Bible. Like that was my true heart intention. It blew up overnight, and you know, thousand thousand people would be tuning into my teachings. And so this is how the human heart works. I thought, oh, well, this is fun. Oh my gosh. And I start dreaming about having a platform and and making money, which I think is good. Like I want to teach people, but now I can I can make a living off of being a social media influencer. And my heart just started craving these things, not even realizing, you know, that 
Like it, it wasn't necessarily bad. I still wanted to share God's message, but at the same time, I wanted a little bit of uh, fame and influence. You want to be significant in this world. You know, we, we crave that. And boy, in these seven years of hardship, God has completely squished me like a little flat raisin. <laughs> and he's really gotten all of, the, not all, no, I'm not there. I've not arrived, but he has gotten so much of the selfish desires that were in me out to do whatever this work is. I'm still here for it. I'm still waiting to know exactly why God put all of these amazing people on my team and what exactly it is that we're supposed to accomplish because it seems now that it's more than just a podcast. But I can tell you now that I do what I do not to to have a platform, not to be an influencer, but to just follow and obey step by step. And that is not if that if that if you are an influencer and you're making money, I'm not saying that all of these things in and of itself are not bad. For me, I needed there was some pride there and I needed that cleared out. And so I just wanted to to um, wrap that up. But I just encourage you today, there is typically something that each of us are going to struggle with in one of these categories that we do at times elevate more than Christ. It becomes an idol in our life. And let's just tear that down. Let's throw that away. Let's get rid of it. And let's follow after Jesus and have the same joy and passion that the Thessalonica church had. Well, that is it for the day. I do want to encourage you that next week we will be covering chapters two and three. And so we, they're short, study chapters two and three. Tune in next week. I can't wait to meet with you again. Happy reading.